Hello and welcome to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. I'm Gavin Costigan and all this month we're talking about biosecurity and the COVID-19 coronavirus. With me to discuss that this week is Professor Paul Hunter, Professor of Health Protection at the University of East Anglia. Paul, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for joining me. Uh, My pleasure. Just to start, when a new virus like COVID-19 emerges, what are the key pieces of information and evidence that governments and health authorities need in order to plan their response? There are a lot of new viruses that are coming up. Most years we see something new uh, in infectious diseases. Most of these probably people never get to hear about outside of the infectious disease community, and many of them do very little harm. So the first key thing is how likely is it to spread in a population? How infectious is it? If you get the infection, how likely is it to make you very seriously ill? How likely is it to kill you? How likely is it that you will be ill for how many days? So how long you're going to suffer as a result of this? So those are the initial things. If it's not very infectious and it doesn't do you much harm, then everybody loses interest really quickly. And how much of this data do we now have for the COVID-19 coronavirus? Well, we, we pretty much know that uh, certainly in the Chinese context, we know that it's quite infectious. It's probably as infectious as influenza. It probably is going to spread further than influenza because with influenza, many of us have already got partial immunity or indeed complete immunity to, to circulating straits. So we wouldn't necessarily get sick. We now have a very good idea of how likely it is to get sick, to be severely ill and what factors are responsible for that, mainly age and certain pre-existing diseases. What we don't fully know yet is, and this is based largely on the Chinese experience to date, Okay. what, what we don't know yet is whether that Chinese experience will translate into Western societies in particular, or indeed into other societies, African societies. It's quite plausible that we will see a reduced death rate in Western societies because of better access to healthcare, more healthcare resources perhaps. But on the other hand, our populations in the UK particularly tends to be older on average than than in China. So we have more people over 70 than the Chinese have, and that might actually then be reflected in in an increased mortality. So time will tell how that plays out. The other thing is the outbreak at the moment tends to be predominantly affecting more northerly countries, countries that are experiencing winter. And before you say, ah, oh, what about Iran? Iran is also in in the middle of its or coming to the end of its winter. And it's been the last few months have still been very uh, relatively quite cold in Iran. So they they're still in their winter. We don't know how it's going to affect Africa in particular. Certainly, Africa has problems. It it would have difficulty in providing as effective screening services and and laboratory testing as we have in the north. It may struggle to um, isolate people in a way that we are able to do in north in, in their containment phase. But on the other hand, often respiratory infections like influenza don't seem to hit Africa as hard as they do in the west, possibly because you know, it's always summer in, in Africa, so people are outdoors more and therefore they don't have quite that same seasonal driver. There are still a lot that we don't know, but we, you know, what we do know, I think we've got a good handle on. You mentioned 
influenza and yeah. we're seeing in the press people comparing this coronavirus with influenza how does it actually stack up some of the data comparing covid-19 with say seasonal uh, influenza seasonal influenza you know left in a, in a totally immunologically naive population influenza would be just as infectious as covid-19 uh, i've got no doubt about that but seasonal influenza, a large part of the population, and particularly the more elderly population, are often have a degree of immunity, either from vaccinations or indeed from prior infections. So it doesn't tend to hit us as hard and it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily spread as rapidly, except in pandemic years, of which we get about one every 30 years or so. In terms of lethality, we're not totally sure about the lethality of seasonal flu. It's quite a difficult thing to measure, but estimates place it somewhere up to probably at most 0.1%, mm. maybe a bit less than that, maybe as low as 0.01%. But it does vary from year to year, depending on how aggressive the the strain is, and whether it's a totally new strain, etc. So typically, I think, COVID-19 probably is about 10 to 20 times more likely to be lethal yeah. than influenza. But the there is quite a bit of uncertainty around that. Focusing on what the UK has been doing, the, the UK government obviously will have had plans in place for some time for dealing with emergencies such as this. Uh, and they're based around four phases of containment, delay, mitigate and research. What's the thinking behind this kind of four stage plan? The containment phase is at the point where you think it's possible that you could actually stop this thing. Uh, and so the focus is all about identifying cases and then removing them from circulation by, if they're ill, taking them into hospital. If they're not that ill, perhaps keeping them at home in self-isolation. Although early on in the outbreak, if you were positive, you went into hospital whether you were ill or not. You know, yeah, and, yeah. But these days we wouldn't do that so much and and the whole theory there is that you know it may be that the global outbreak might be controlled and therefore if we can do our bit to stop it spreading in the UK then maybe we can avert this thing and to be honest it's actually worked pretty well in the UK I think the NHS and Public Health England have done really well at the containment phase because you look at what's happened in the UK with the number of cases we've imported and then the number of secondary cases that have come from that, our outbreak seems to have kicked off a lot less rapidly than was the case in many other countries. So when we move into the delay phase, the whole point of that is that we've decided that the epidemic is inevitable. But what we're trying to do is spread out the outbreak so that hopefully not everybody gets sick in the first two weeks so that the health service isn't overwhelmed so it loses half its staff and so forth the sort of things that you do in the delay phase you ban mass gatherings you may close schools you would be encouraging people to work from home that sort of thing which i'm sure you've heard yeah. repeatedly said on 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 news items over the last week the thing, though, about that phase is that will not actually affect the ultimate size of the outbreak. But hopefully you will have enough healthcare staff still able to work and enough beds to cope with the people that are 
needing more intensive treatment. The mitigate phase is sort of when it's there and it's all, mitigate is really all about trying to keep as many people alive as we can. They've already got the illness, they've got it. And possibly as well protect particularly vulnerable people from infection. And you know, one of the things that I've not seen in that much yet from the UK government's advice is what do you do if you are in your 70s, mid-70s, you've maybe got chronic bronchitis, you're at home, possibly by yourself, possibly with your wife. You're not sick, but what do you do? You know, mm. and and I think that's something that really we need some fairly urgent advice on because I think to me one of the important things is if we can perhaps get people over this first peak without getting the infection, then maybe we can do quite a bit. Maybe by the time we get cases coming back, maybe next winter, people who might otherwise have got severe disease we're getting at a time when a vaccine might be becoming available so i think we we do need to focus more on particularly vulnerable people and and the elderly in in the mitigation phase but mostly or most of what we've heard about mitigation is all around providing care to people who are particularly sick that sort of thing and the research the research is not a phase really it, it's something that's going on all the time and it stretches Ever since outbreak was really recognised, the government has been putting money aside in for research for things like vaccine development and and other uh, research activities. You mentioned that the the delay phase is when the epidemic is inevitable, and so far in the UK, it's worth saying that we're recording this on the 10th of March. The government hasn't yet announced it's in that phase, but we might get there. What's the data? that's used to make that assessment? Nobody in my subject area doesn't believe that the outbreak is inevitable. The outbreak, the epidemic in the UK is inevitable. The issue is how do you time some of these large scale interventions in a way that will achieve what you want them to achieve, but at the same time minimise harm to society both the economic harm to society and the social harm to society. Now, I, I would say at this point that I'm, I have no role to play in advising the UK Health Department or Public Health England or the government uh, on, on this outbreak. My involvement is more with the World Health Organization, but I've not seen the data on which they've based these decisions. But my understanding is it's based on modelling. Mm. mathematical modelling. We've got some very strong centres of uh, modelling, disease modelling expertise in this country. And I'm guessing that what what they're doing is trying to model the outbreak and and using that, try to see when would be the best time to implement control measures in a way that would achieve the best delay in the epidemic, but minimise the harm. But I haven't seen yeah. I haven't seen those models. I haven't seen the output from those models. So I can't really judge other than to say that the people that Department of Health are using are have generally got very high reputations in this in this field. So you mentioned potential large scale interventions. And obviously, we've seen some of those in China. We've now this week seen the whole of Italy on some kind of lockdown. It's hard to know how the how the next few weeks will pan out. But those kinds of things are the things that are potentially in the the 
arsenal and the armory of yes. uh, of the UK to to try yeah. and and deal with these things. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. The experience in Wuhan was that the control measures, the lockdown in Wuhan, certainly ultimately had quite a major positive impact on managing to control the infection within China. I'm not sure whether those same approaches would necessarily be appropriate in the UK. And my reason for saying this is that actually, whilst we had Wuhan, it was still theoretically possible that we could avert a global spread of the infection. Yes. If you could have put a big wall around Wuhan and then ultimately the infection would have burnt itself out in the population there and wouldn't have spread. The problem was it it did spread initially within China and the Chinese have managed that very effectively. But now it's all over the place. The thing that worries me about what Italy has done is when will they know that it's appropriate to lift that? And it may well be the case, particularly as we're moving into April and the spread might be less, that, that actually that could delay the outbreak a bit to the point that it, it would sort of tend to spread less rapidly because of we're moving into spring and summer. But we don't know for certain. And it's plausible that you know, if they keep it going for, I don't know, two, three, four weeks and then stop, then there's still a lot of infections going on around Italy and neighbouring countries. And one could see it actually coming back into yeah. into Italy, even if they did manage to control it, which I think is going to be difficult. Personally, I don't think that sort of approach would necessarily be appropriate in the UK setting. And I suspect, but I don't know for certain, that we would not actually implement something quite as severe as what the Italians have done. But we could expect, for example not running certain sporting activities, banning large groups of people coming together for whatever reason. Oh, absolutely. Yes, yes, yes. And I I can see that. um, I think that is inevitable. I think it's quite likely that we will see people being encouraged to work from home more. I think it's quite plausible that schools may close. One of the nice things about universities is they do tend to have longer Easter breaks. So maybe uh, the Easter break would coincide quite neatly with the need to uh, implement these these delaying strategies. But uh, yeah, so I think I think it's quite likely that many school children will have a slightly longer Easter break than they had originally hoped for. Well, I have a couple of teenagers uh, who are hoping the same for their school. We'll see what happens. In terms of the NHS, I mean, you talked earlier about part of this is to try and spread out the infections over a period of time so the NHS can cope. Obviously, it's going to be an immense strain. What are the kind of things that the NHS can do to prepare itself as best as it can? Well, I think at the moment it's been focusing on preventing infections from from known cases spreading to other patients or indeed staff. And, And that will continue. I think but when we get large numbers of cases, the concept of case isolation, barrier nursing, as we would typically call it, becomes impossible because you don't have that many side rooms. One of the big changes in, in my career in, in the health service was that when I started, we always had a lot of side rooms in hospitals that could be used to isolate patients. 
But those side rooms were often taken over for offices or other activities and were no longer available for patient use. So we don't have as many side rooms as we used to have 20, 30 years ago. And I, I think that's a shame. But what would happen when we've got lots of cases, we'd, we'd do something called cohort nursing. So we would perhaps take over entire wards. Maybe in major cities, we might take over entire hospitals and designate particular hospitals. Um, that, but it all depends on how what the demand is. And you could, all, you could see a situation where for a period of, I don't know, about uh, four weeks, eight weeks at most, that a lot of elective treatments like surgical operations, hip operations, that sort of thing yeah. would be delayed. But clearly, there's going to be some need for triage and prioritising of people who don't have coronavirus because you don't want to fill all the beds with coronavirus and then start losing patients from other diseases that could have been treatable. So there will be a degree of triage where people are prioritised for to be continued use, but other people who it's it's other patients where it's not thought yeah. not thought not to be quite so urgent will will. Uh, have to be delayed for um, two or three months. Once people have had coronavirus and recovered, as of course the vast majority of people do, what do we know about the likelihood of them catching it again? Is it like other forms of influenza where they have a, a degree of protection or do we not uh, know that yet? No, we, we're pretty sure. There has been, to be fair, a couple of reports about people who have got reinfections. I am far from convinced by those reports and I suspect that what we were seeing in those particular cases is people who hadn't had adequate demonstration that they'd cleared the infection then for what other other reason maybe you know getting some other illness or whatever coming back and and then having another swab taken and it found to be positive and then therefore people considering that that's a reinfection so I don't think that happens with possible exception of people who are very immune compromised yeah, but um, yeah. these people would probably wouldn't adequately clear the infection in the first place obviously we talked about research and this is going to be going on in parallel to hopefully develop a vaccine and other other treatments yeah. um, that takes time how long does it typically take to develop a vaccine and then scale up production yeah, of the, that yeah. vaccine? When I was starting out in, in my specialty, you would expect it to take about 15 years. Um, but, <laughs> but these days, actually, it is so fast to produce a vaccine. I'm aware from reading in the newspapers of about a dozen groups around the world who have pretty much either got a prototype vaccine or, or are very close to having one. The problem and the time then comes in the clinical trials because you can't just manufacture a vaccine and then use it straight away. What you have to do is you have to you manufacture a vaccine and then you have to prove it's safe in people that it doesn't actually cause serious side effects. Once you've done that, you've then got to prove that it actually does what you think it does. And that's also by a series of clinical trials. And only then, once that's done, will you get a license. And I'm sure that the licensing bodies around the world are gearing up to make very fast decisions on this. And then once you've got a license, then you start manufacturing in bulk. 
but you know manufacturing in bulk is not something that you can do very very quickly so i'm sure the people who are, are working on this are taking decisions about how best to start uh, doing this and and what risks to commercial risks they are prepared to accept to be first on the market but yeah it's um i think in total i it's plausible that we could have something on the market by christmas but probably early next year that's still remarkably fast actually oh unbelievably so yes yeah. yeah i mean this sort of stuff has changed so rapidly during my professional lifetime yeah, you know, yeah, it, yeah. It, it's you know we can do things now that we didn't even imagine we could do 40 years ago no it is it is incredible my last question and this is the impossible one i guess it's clearly going to be a bumpy ride in the uk over the next few weeks how do you think what's your best guess of how this is going to pan out across the uk over the next sort of four six yeah, eight weeks it, you're quite right it is difficult I suspect we will be getting a peak probably in April. I personally don't believe that the peak will be as aggressive as some reports are showing it. People have been talking about up to 80% of the population getting the infection with maybe up to four or five million deaths. I can't see that happening at all, personally. Mm. That, that's always been the extreme upper end, but you, you know what it's like. Some yeah. newspapers, they will always print the upper limit and, and ignore the most likely outcome. I suspect we will get a big, maybe in a, ba- in a very bad year, we would, in, in one of the worst years for influenza recently, we had 50,000 fatalities, excess deaths in the UK about. And, and I, it would not surprise me if we saw about double that this year. But particularly the timing as it is at the moment, I suspect it will die down in summer but then i i don't know for certain but i think it will probably come back next year and i suspect it will actually after that it will become what we call endemic and that we will then see small numbers of cases of this infection most years from now forward although when we do that we won't see anywhere near the same mortality as we're seeing now because in theory Everybody who's particularly vulnerable at the moment will have either had the infection or and and recovered or or not sadly, and and the people at risk will be often many people who actually aren't born yet, and so the infection will possibly continue, but but be very mild because it generally affects children and and young adults. Paul Hunter, thank you very much. My pleasure. You're listening to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. You can find us on soundcloud.com, on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or wherever you found this podcast. Or you can check out further details about the Foundation at www.foundation.org.uk.